0: Have you ever admired a leader and wondered just what it is that makes her who she is? How he came to embrace the things that advanced him? Welcome to Timeless Leadership where we look at the principles that define success. This is a show for leaders at all stages of their careers who aspire to understand what it truly means to be a leader. And who is a leader? John Adams said, If your actions inspire others to dream more, learn more, do more, and become more, you are a leader. Together, we'll explore key principles, not only in the sense of the fundamentals, but also in the ethical sense. The habits, character traits, and virtues that form the backbone of leadership. Principles that are just as relevant and essential in the 21st century as they were in the 1st century. This is Timeless Leadership. Hello and welcome to Timeless Leadership, where we explore principles and virtues that accompany successful and admirable leaders. I'm Scott Monty, and if you aren't subscribed to the Timeless and Timely newsletter where I regularly cover these topics, please check it out at scottmonty.com. This week, we're exploring humanity. Now, in an age of technological wonder, where your face can unlock your phone and we can receive a same-day delivery after asking a smart speaker for a product, it seems to be a little odd to be talking about humanism and humanity. The ancient philosophers knew the importance of humanity with their ten essential virtues. And let's review them quickly, just in case you've forgotten. Their wisdom, justice, fortitude, self-control, humility, love, positivity, hard work, integrity, and gratitude. Yet these days we focus on numbers and hard skills, and that tends to distract us from these core truths, these softer attributes. We chase follower counts and views on social media. We deliver long-term strategies while being held to short-term financial results. And we're enamored with the fluctuating price of Bitcoin. What if we stepped back and looked at what drives all of this? People, our relationships, and the excellence of that we pursue. Tom Peters has been chasing excellence for 43 years. He received his bachelor's and master's degrees in engineering from Cornell and his MBA and PhD from Stanford, focusing on implementation. Tom worked at McKinsey and Company from 1974 to 1981, becoming a partner in 1979. He co-founded their organization, Effectiveness Practice. In 1981, he left to found his own consulting and advisory firms. With 19 books to his name, Tom has been honored by dozens of associations for his content on management, leadership, quality, human resources, campaigning for more women in senior leadership positions, customer service, innovation, marketing, and design. If you've never heard him speak, Tom Peters is what would happen if Dale Carnegie, Peter Drucker, and Red Bull had a baby. And his final book is Excellence Now, Extreme Humanism. Tom, welcome to Timeless Leadership.
1: Well, thank you. And I'm not entirely sure I have anything to say because that was the best not the introduction of me. That was the best introduction to the topic of leadership I may have ever heard. Oh. So it's my pleasure to interview you today. <laughs> well, I, it was really it was really wonderful. It's absolutely fabulous. I not commend you for it. That was cool. Seriously cool.
0: Well, thank you. I'm 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 humbled by that. I mean, you are a a guru to many in the management and leadership field. I've certainly been following you for a long time. Um, I've seen, I think, the fruits of your labor from uh, a CEO I used to work closely with, uh, who who espoused a lot of the stuff you talk about, and that's Alan Mulally at Ford Motor Company. Um, it, it and it, it's it's interesting to me because you and he are both engineers by training. And yet here you and I sit with scads of books on the shelves behind us. So talk to me a little bit about why an engineer would approach something as, and and I know I'm going to get on your, your bad side with this, approaching something with the softer side, like humanism and and leadership and, and such.
1: First, I'm going to challenge your language just a little bit. Uh, I did not consider myself an engineer. I consider myself a recovering engineer. Uh, I could spend the day answering that question, but the way I'm going to answer it, and this is not looking for points or people to do whatever. uh, My parents had no money effectively. I went to a little private school and my mother started teaching the fifth grade to pay my way through that school Uh, I went to Cornell as an engineer, and every single penny of my tuition was paid by the United States Navy. And in return, I uh, gave them four years of my life. And in the middle of my education, uh, Lyndon Johnson did the same thing I think George W. Bush did in Iraq, and that is made up an event, and we were allowed to fight a war in Vietnam. And I was a civil engineer, and so the U.S. Navy has a group of combat engineers called the CBs. And C B S E A B E is for Cap C, Cap B Construction Battalion, more than you need to know. They started off at, at Guadalcanal. At any rate, uh, I had an extraordinary engineering education. Uh, so at some point in August of 1966, uh, my C-141 Starlifter lands in Benang, Vietnam, and I am a junior officer in charge of a detachment uh, in the middle. We weren't Marines or Special Forces guys going out and getting shot at every night. I do not want to overplay this. People were wounded, people were killed, but that was not the main part of it. Uh, but here's the point. So my first deployment was nine months. I came home, uh, I, which was Maryland, Annapolis, Maryland. I went up to Cornell, and I uninvited stormed into the engineering dean's office. And I won't use the exact language I use because this is a family gathering. But fundamentally, I said, "You screwed me." You gave me the best technical education known to humankind. I landed at midnight in August of of 1966, and I was legally the chief petty officers actually run the navy. I was legally responsible for the lives of a detachment of ten or fifteen sailors, and my leadership training at. The great Cornell University was zippity do da 0 They may have forced us to take a psych course or something like that. Um, and that is one of two formative moments. I don't like words like epiphany, and the epiphany was, I will admit, a little bit in retrospect, but it was huge. And, you know, as I said, I, I'm not – overblowing this thing. The chief petty officers run the Navy, the sergeants run the army. They were really in charge, but legally, I was the legally responsible officer for the lives of 14 or 15 people in a combat zone. Uh, And two things, one thing it reminds me of, and then another thing I want to go back to, but um, Peter Pronovost, who was a uh, Johns Hopkins ICU doctor, and I suspect most of the people who are listening to us know a little bit about this, invented, he stole it from the airlines, which he's the first person to say, the checklist. And the use of the checklist in healthcare is to help reduce the 200,000 unnecessary hospital deaths that come from little crappy stuff, uh, not big things. But at any rate, there's a quote of Peter's that I use in my new book and have used in general. And he said, During It was just ditto of what I just said. He said, during my years at medical school, I probably looked through a microscope 180 hours, a skill which I've never used once since I graduated. I had zero hours, zero minutes, and zero seconds of leadership training. uh, And now what am I doing leading slash managing an ICU? And I don't want to go on forever with this, but I want to do just the, the other epiphany. I was working for McKinsey, something I used to be incredibly proud of, and with their horrid and disgraceful involvement in the OxyContin thing more recently, I don't get it, uh, except big companies tend to get worse over time, something we might have time to discuss. But at any rate, McKinsey supported the research that became In Search of Excellence. Uh, my co-author Bob Waterman and I were in the San Francisco McKinsey office and one fine morning, as it were, we drove down the road 30 miles to Palo Alto to interview the president of Hewlett Packard, a guy by the name of John Young. Uh, first of all, we live two floors below the CEO of the Bank of America. And if you went up there and were offered a cup of tea, it was probably a teacup that came directly from Buckingham Palace. Uh, The president of this billion dollar company, John Young, his suite was an eight foot by eight foot cubicle with walls that came up to about your chest. So John's going through stuff. We're questioning him. He introduces us to this thing called the HP way. Nobody used the word culture in those days. We use the way we do things around here. And in the middle of the HP way spiel, he uttered the four most important letters in my professional life, M, B, W, A, or managing by wandering around. Uh, and the point of that really, and the reason I raise it, is I work for McKinsey. I was used to working with Citicorp and Jason Manhattan back and all these big companies And suddenly, Young demonstrated that you could be running a billion-dollar company and induce human intimacy. And it was like, holy shit, you can do that? You can walk out of your office and actually talk to 26-year-old engineers? And and it really, maybe sounds stupid in 2021, but it was an epiphany to understand. I mean, it's exactly what the hell you said in your introduction. And so he, he introduces us to this, and then at some point later on, he said, come on, he said, why don't you guys wander with me for a while? And I think he actually did use the word wander. So we go into, want went across the road or across the hall to one of the engineering spaces, and there were a bunch of engineers, probably, you know, 29 to 38 would be the, the major range. And so John talked to him the same way you and I are talking. It was nothing stilted, nothing formal. Uh, You know, they talked a little bit about engineering, and he always automatically asked them, what am I doing to make your life more miserable, and how can I reverse it? And they also talked about dropped passes at the 49ers game the prior Sunday, and so on. But it was professional, it was amiable, it was practically useful. And then (laughs) the, the topper... And we were very unimportant people, so it damn well wasn't staged for us. Uh, so he points over and he said, says, oh, there's a guy over there that I'd like you to meet. And the guy was some, you could kind of see from the back of his head, he looked like I do now. He was an old fart, and he was talking to a young engineer. So Bob and I, dressed in Air McKinsey black suits, black ties, black shirts, etc., uh, walk over with John, who... He did have a tie on, and that was, you know, 1977. An engineers still wore ties, but it was the most casual shirt you've ever seen in your life. So he walks over, and he said, Bob and Tom, there's somebody here I'd like you to meet. I'd like you to meet Bill Hewlett. Uh, fortunately, it wasn't being taped, so you couldn't see me peeing my pants. <laughs> but at any rate, so the point being, and, you know, we had a little exchange, but the point being that Bill Hewlett, the Packard of HP, David Packard, he was kind of the formal guy and handed all the money stuff and so on. But but Bill was the guy who worked on the products. He was the engineering guy. And he was having a comfortable conversation with somebody 26, 27, 28. And they were chatting like a couple of peers. And, you know, one would point at, this was a you know, big computer screen days, but it was, uh, it's, you know, it wasn't the 10 great principles but it pretty well got all ten of them, you know. And it's in its own fashion. It was intimate. It was human. Uh, and then, for the ones who, of us me too who carry around MBAs, uh, it's also long term, demonstrably the best way to make money and grow. You know, I, you know, you mentioned, and we can talk about it. Perhaps the, you know, the focus I've had on women's issues, uh, and. I've said I've had it for two reasons. One, the literature says women are better leaders. And two, women buy just about everything. And so my point has been, I do believe in social justice. I'm really interested in the social justice part of the women's issue, but that ain't what I'm talking about. I am talking about more effective enterprises and the people who buy your products. So it's hard-ass MBA logic, you know, if you will. But the, the best part of... My education is it means that when I'm having talks about this soft stuff, you can't lay a finger on me. I have got my bases covered. You ain't talking to a philosophy major. You are talking to somebody with four quantitative degrees, two engineering, two businesses who is a combat veteran. So, you know, screw with me, if you will. (laughs) But I mean, it's, it, it's no praggadocio It's just listen. I'm telling you, the most important thing in the world is to walk on the shop floor or Zoom on the shop floor and have intimate conversations with people. Uh, and and I'm not telling you that as as a guy who memorized all the Greek philosophers. I'm taught, telling you that as somebody who can you know solve third order differential equations with both hands tied behind my back. And it's really important. I've seen it and it makes me nauseated when I'm talking, when I'm focusing on women's issues and there's a woman who is speaking before me or ahead of me, I speak to these guys usually and say, wake the F up. This is important. And I can scream at them. I can yell at them. I can tell them they're idiots because I tell them that I'm an idiot too. A woman then gets up there, not using my language, uh, but who makes points that are a more pertinent and b have more data. And you know, I had them chuckling. And I wish you know you will have the video of this, but their arms crossed in front of their chests when you know when she speaks, which is I won't call it unpardonable. That's silly, but it's uh, you know anyway. I can talk about the soft stuff because so- I can get.
0: I know well. Clearly, uh, I've I've hit a passionate nerve, and that's great. And you know, this is interesting because so many of the other guests I've had on it, it 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 feeds into uh each successive episode. I talked with Marilyn gist about leader humility, and she was talking about Jim Senegal. She's
1: supposed to be a water walker. I'm told she's an amazing woman. Oh, she's right? fantastic!
0: Yeah, and and she co wrote the book with uh, my old boss, Alan Mulally. Oh, yeah. Um, but she talked about Jim Senegal from, uh, Costco, you know, you walk into his office and he's got a six foot, you know, just a foldable table as his desk and he picks up his own phone when he can and answers his own calls. I mean, it's, it's that level of humanism. And a couple episodes ago I had, believe it or not, I had a practical philosopher on, there is such a thing as practical philosophy. A uh, guy by the name of Tom Morris, who goes around and visits a lot of corporations. And we got to talking about how all of this wisdom, the topic was wisdom, uh, We how so much of this wisdom comes from our grandmothers, right? And I, I want to pull the clip because Tom had something to say that you'll appreciate as well. Right. The real deal,
1: uh, the people who are truly wise, whether it's somebody's grandmother they grew up. I'll say, I often say to people, "If you ever had a wise person in your life, yes, my grandmother is often an answer." That's I'll true, give. you know. Yeah. And so, for too much of human history, those grandmothers' words of wisdom were not written down. We have the grandfathers, but we don't have enough of the grandmothers. And and hopefully, in our time, we're reversing that. We have many more wise women writing down what they've learned, trying to pass along what they've learned. Uh, and it's it's a wonderful thing.
0: So what what can we do, in, in Tom's words, to honor these women and to take their words of wisdom to heart?
1: I'm much more brutal than I used to be. Uh, maybe it's because I'm getting older and don't have that many more years left to scream and shout and wave my arms around. Uh, what you can do is cut the crap, shut the hell up, and make sure if you're in a sizable company, within 36 months, 50% of your executive team is women. And and if you're in a public company or private, 50% of your board. Quit screwing around. And if you dare tell me that you have a difficulty finding qualified women, I will not like that because I may die. I will be laughing so hysterically at that comment. And so, you know, I you know, I, I, think, I think I've think i got this right, but I've said we're going to declare, and that's, we've come a long way, comma, but we're going to declare a national holiday when a woman becomes a CEO and the day that we have more women CEOs of Fortune 500 companies than we do men whose first name is James. I mean, it's, you know, I think we're up to, 41 women out of 500, but you know, I've had it. I, you know, we're dealing with understanding more and more every day, the depths of our inequality problems. And I'm of an age where affirmative action was a big thing. Many saw it as pluses. There were minuses and so on, but I'm becoming affirmative action. This for effectiveness standpoint, quit screwing around. I don't, I'm not going to give you a medal when you've gotten your executive team to have four women instead of three out of 12. No, I'm going to give you a swift, hard boot in the ass and say, let's get going. And you say, well, we can't fire half our guys. I say, fine, expand the executive team to 18 and hit the nine mark. But just no effing excuses. And, and, and there is enough research to sink a battleship, which says women are... On average, there are great male leaders, as you know, and there are awful women leaders. But on average, women are better leaders, better salespeople, better negotiators, and better investors. And my favorite book title uh, ever, May Top the Bible, for God's sakes, or the Koran, which will get me in trouble with various people, is Luann Lofton is a senior person at Motley Fool. And here's her book title. Warren Buffett invests like a girl, comma, and why you should too. And I love it. And when it came out, which is also terrific, uh, Buffett hadn't heard about it, but he wrote the first review at Amazon, and it was the sweetest thing in the world. He said, you know, I didn't know I invested like a girl, but she's got it. And and the kind of things which speak to a lot of this is one example, Uh, you and I, We're back to being in offices for this discussion. You and I are sitting next to each other, and we are traders. I don't know whether bond traders or what the hell we're traders, but we're traders. And you have had a really good day, and I haven't had a great day. And it's now 30 minutes before the market closes. And I'll be goddamned if I'm going home with you having had a better day. So I start doing shit for the last 30 minutes. I buy stuff recklessly. And, you know, most of which blows up either then or the next morning. And it's that male testosterone kicking in. And the research, which Ms. Lofton does, says things like women don't do that kind of smart assery. They actually think before they make decisions and so on. But it was a, it's, a, it's really, a, you know, I think it's a very good illustration. But, you know, what's my answer for the women's thing? Quit screwing around. It's like this wonderful thing with um, some group made a heavy commitment to Black Lives Matter and there were announcements and so on. And a guy who heads, I think it's a headhunting firm, who's an African-American, had a whole letter in either the journal, Wall Street Journal or New York Times, and he said, this is wonderful what you've done for Black Lives Matter. Will you please send me a photograph of your executive team? And... You know, that which is where the rubber meets the road, as they say in the world of Ford Motor Companies and others. Send me a picture of the executive team, and then maybe we can talk about this.
0: Well, and it seems to me that over the last year or so, the pandemic has created an accelerator for a lot of companies to do a lot of innovative things. And, you know, that would be part and parcel with it. And you, you, you actually have a really interesting, uh, section in your book, uh, called the leadership seven slash COVID-19. You want to run through what those are and, and, yes, and how we can approach them.
1: Um, uh, when. The pandemic started, my wife has done many things, but her start was at a tapestry, as a tapestry weaver, the big giant ones in, studio, in, in uh, lobbies and so on. But nobody had masks, and she and a bunch of other people started making masks. And so I'm sitting in my home office, and I said, you know, she's, she's actually trying to do something. Why are you sitting on your ass? And so, with my colleague Shelley, who you know, we volunteered to be on podcasts or anywhere, and arrogantly, uh, you know, we said, "I will talk about leadership amidst the pandemic." And out of that came this thing that I call the COVID nineteen leadership seven. And it sounds like the list you read at the beginning of this, in many respects, be kind. Be caring, be patient, be forgiving, be positive, be present. Walk in the other person's shoes. And my great prayer, and I suspect that yours too, uh, is that it has—it's happened in places. It hasn't happened, but there is more of it than there was a year ago. And my great prayer, and a lot of people have said this on many dimensions, is that some of these more humane acts will stick when COVID-19, you know, hopefully, you know, reaches a stability point or the end or what have you. Let me tell you what my definition was. My practical definition is I'm running a group of 10 or 15 people and we have Three or four zoom meetings a week and in whatever the last four months we've had 20 zoom meetings and our friend who's the finance person, Mary has showed up or we'll call it bill. This is a gender neutral point. We'll call it Mary bill. Uh, Mary bill has showed up on time for every one of the 20 meetings and now we're doing a little evaluation. And I say to this person, I'm going to give you a little bit of negative feedback if I could. And that is, your attendance record is too good. You know, I know that you've got two kids at home. I know that your wife or husband is teaching the seventh grade from the second floor via Zoom. And I don't know these things as the boss, by the way. I know that your mother is in an assisted living place and we all know that's been problematic. And I said, look, do what you need to do for your family, yourself, your community. I am happy as can be. If you miss a meeting, I'm happy if you miss three meetings, I'm happy if you show up late to four in a row. Uh, But you know, productivity is not priority number one at this point. And then, you know, and so that's my little spiel to you. And then we put the asterisk on it, which is not what was going through my head. But guess what I did? I just increased productivity because something like something like that with a person like that is going to lead them to focus more than ever, perform more, deal with their colleagues, and so on. I mean, it's the I I did this the, the part of me which is a not quite recovered engineer. Uh, we are required to speak in equations, and I did my equation, which was K equals sign R equals sign P. And that stands for kindness equals repeat business equals profit. Uh, And, you know, I hope, and you implied this relative to everything you're doing, I hope the kindness comes from somewhere deeper than the implications on a spreadsheet. But the point is, it is a wonderful thing. It's a magnificent thing. Uh, David Brooks, the New York Times columnist, had a column, I think it came out of his book, one of his books, uh, maybe it was a year ago, and one of the most powerful things I've ever read, he contrasted what he called resume virtues and eulogy virtues. Resume virtues are: Tom went to Cornell. He graduated in the top ten percent of his class. Then he was a veteran. Then he went to Stanford and graduated in the top ten percent of his class. And then he went to work for McKinsey. And he was promoted three times and so on. That's the CV or the res- or the resume virtues. And as Brooks says, the the uh, eulogy virtues are: What do they say about you at your funeral? And that's all about what your decency as a human being. When I used, have used in the past PowerPoint slides, one of the ones I have is a plain gray tombstone and on it is Joe T. Jones, 19 blank to 2021, $13,782,612.04 dollars net worth when the market closed on the day that he died. Uh, well, that ain't what's on tombstones. (laughs) You know, that's, that's my point. Uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, I, I just love the, the, you know, that resume virtue versus, and my practical point, which I say to people is, uh, so as you and I are talking, I don't know what people are going to say, but we just happen to be talking on a Thursday. Uh, at the end of your workday Thursday, what's your eulogy score for Thursday? What's your eulogy score? Uh, and I, you know, it's again, I'm not quantifying for the sake of making it into a spreadsheet, but just, just go, go through, you know, have there been a couple of times you reached a little bit farther, reached out or, you know, dealt thoughtfully with, with someone. Uh, incidentally, one of the people that I command you to have is, uh Betsy Myers. And Betsy was the women's initiative executive, whatever you want to call it, uh, in the Clinton administration. Uh, she what ran a women's program at an engineering school in the greater Boston area called Bentley. She's now mainly coaching. And she's a wonderful person. She happens to be the Betsy Myers, the sister of Dee Dee Myers, who was the uh, spokesperson for Clinton. But uh, Betsy's book is called Take the Lead, and you implied this. And the point is, any human being, maybe we'll say over the age of 10, but any human being can be a leader on any day. And you know the way I've always said is it's a you know the temperature in my car went over seventy yesterday for the first time this year, uh, but it's a miserable uh, Ann Arbor or South Coast Massachusetts day in February. It is gray. It is cold. It is sleeting, and on the way to work in the F two F thing, we stop somewhere. And there's a little florist and you spend all of 10 bucks and pick up a little bunch of flowers and you come into the office and you go to the, you know, the coffee area and put them in a little pot somewhere and stick them on the receptionist desk or something like that. That is an act of pure, unmitigated, unbridled leadership. Just add a little teeny color on a gray day. That's what leadership is all about. That's what leadership is all about.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I want to jump back there just a little bit. You talked about eulogy virtues versus resume virtues. What do you hope to have on your tombstone, Tom?
1: Well, my third book, which is called Thriving on Chaos, was devoted, was dedicated to two people, one of whom was William, William, William Donald Schaefer, who at the worst of times, and there's some bad times now, was the mayor of Baltimore, and to say that he turned Baltimore around is actually a pretty good and not hyperbolic statement. And I went to the big event, uh, which was his retirement celebration, and Mayor Schaefer got up after all the other words, and in the middle of his presentation, he said, I would like to have a tombstone and I would like to have it have two words on it. He cared and that'll work for me. Uh, and you know, as I, I said in this book, which is, you pointed out is my 19th, I said, you know, I'm a greedy guy. I'd love to have the royalty. I'd love to have you go out and buy all 19 of my books. I would cash the royalties check. But here's the dirty little secret. They all say exactly the same thing. You know, it's 19 efforts to say, do your wandering around, talk to the kids, uh, bring the flowers, behave like a decent human being. There's, there's, a, there's a quote from the great novelist Henry James, which I love, and you probably know this one. Three things in human life are important. The first is to be kind. The second is to be kind. And the third is to be kind. Absolutely. And the whole point of what I've been doing for, as I point out in the new book, 43 years since the research started for In Search of Excellence, is basically saying, be thoughtful, be kind, be caring, focus on people. And I believe, and you hinted at this earlier on, it's far more important in the age of artificial intelligence than ever before the ability to stand out. I write a lot about design with, you know, products that move you. There was there's a little quote from a guy who wrote a book called emotional design. His name is Donald Norman. He's a social psychologist by training, but he quotes in there. It's the, I think it's the, uh, the mini Cooper, whatever it is, mini Cooper eight or something like that. I think many of us know that car. And he quotes from a review and the review said, no car in recent memory has caused more smiles. Now that to me is the best advertisement statement, whatever you want. And I think all of our services, be they consulting, be they podcasting, be they coaching, you know, it's in the the deepest sense, more smiles, more interaction, more humanity. Yeah. And the, I think that's the way you stay ahead of the curve. I would also say, and I, you know, I know you have all sorts of people on, uh, I know I'm really old, but even if I was 25 years younger, I know that an insane amount of stuff is gonna happen in the next 15 to 20 years. But here's the secret. First, you got to make it to this afternoon. And life five years from now will be changed, but the elements will be significantly recognizable. Yeah. You know, my last book before the current one uh, was called The Excellence Dividend, which was the publisher's chosen title. I had an alternative title, which plays a big role in the new book. And the alternative title was Excellence is the Next Five Minutes. Excellence is not a hill to climb. Excellence is not an aspiration. Excellence will go f to f but it could be you and I having this discussion. Excellence is after the meeting lets out, and Mary or Sam, Sam didn't contribute much, and they weren't smiling much and they're exceptional people is you spend three minutes in the hall and say, "You know, what's up you know you never frown. because you know you just have a little human three minute interaction with somebody, and you know the the, the whole world is changed for everybody, and the enterprise is is changed by that so You know, that's really my message. It's excellence is the next five minutes or it is nothing at all. Uh, And the way I define it relative to what you're doing, we are doing rather, is whatever I've been doing relative to my current thingy, I've been doing for 40 odd years. At this moment, at this moment, with all those years, and all those 2,500 speeches, and all those 19 books, and all those engineering degrees, at this moment, the only thing in my life that matters is the quality of our conversation. This is it. I mean, obviously, if I had, my wife was suffering from COVID-19 or what have you, but but this is it. I don't understand what happened before half an hour ago, and I have no idea what's going to happen in half an hour from now. But this exchange is, you know, I'm doing my best to give you 43 years or actually 78 years. You know, I didn't have the grandmother, but I had it in one generation later, which was my mother. And uh, she she was a Virginian by birth. And some things happen in the South that don't always make me happy, and that's actually understatement. But the one thing I said, I know my mother loved me, or I certainly think so. But the most important thing she gave me was southern manners. You know, manners is a sounds stiff, but it's you know. I said, if you want to understand my mother, you're opening Christmas presents. It was a pretty big pile for you. You're a kid of thirteen or something, whatever. And you're halfway through and your mother calls a halt. And the halt is so that you can write the thank you notes for the first half of the presents that you receive. And I will admit that's borders on exaggeration, but not by much. Wow. And, and I said the other thing, and I said it to people because sometimes they almost get insulted. I said, look, I have no choice. I call 19-year-old 7-Eleven clerks Yes, ma'am, or yes, sir, because I am not allowed not to do that by my mother, who has now been dead for 16 years, and that doesn't matter in the least. Well, Isn't he- that the only, here's, a, here's the point of all this. Uh, my wife and I, I'm 78, she's 70, and we wanted to see if you know we had our kind of life in order if something happened, and so we had somebody who helps us. With finances, and I remember it's the third time when it clicked. Uh, Barbara Martin is the woman I work with, and I got an email from her, and I don't know what it was about. You know, it could have been Social Security, Medicare, who knows? But the email started out with "Hi Tom," comma space da 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 da, space have a good day comma. Barbara and honest to God a light bulb went off for me I thought holy shit this makes it a human conversation and it's you know it's trivial but it's not trivial at all and I have a great friend who's a psychiatrist and I made this comment to him and he didn't quite laugh. I said Steve, if you are a boss and you will show me your last 10, 10 line or more emails, I can do a complete American psychiatric association quality diagnosis of you as a human being. And he said, probably an exaggeration, but maybe not by all that much. Uh, And it is that, you know, is, do you, Do you just, are you just moving so fast that everything and, and, and no humanity to it at all? And where, where's the high Tom, right? You know, the whole world changes when you, when you, when you read that high Tom, I don't know how it changes, but you know, I'm not a neuroscientist, but there are neuroscientists now by the hundred and they know that. All sorts of wiggledy diggledies happen in your head when somebody says thank you, or somebody says I'm sorry, or somebody says hello, and the brain just goes zippity do dot a.
0: Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting because, you know, technology has allowed us to do so much of this so much faster and to reach so many more people. But at the same time, it's allowed us to forget the essentials of what's important in human relationships. You know, just yesterday in my newsletter, I talked about the importance of the pickle barrel. Do you have a pickle barrel in your life? Now, this is going probably farther back than, than uh, well, certainly farther back than me, maybe farther back than you. The old general store. When when that was the center of a town's existence and you would go in there for everything from, you know, your postage stamps to, to flour to canned goods, there would be a pickle barrel there and there'd usually be a guy sitting next to it and he'd take the lid off and you'd have a conversation, right? And it would become the center of the community and you didn't just go in for a transaction, you were part of an intricate community and a relationship, whether you liked it or not, that you had to deal with other people in a kind and a polite manner. And we we kind of need some version of that to return again. Are are we getting better or worse because of technology?
1: I am not in any way. Here's my answer. I was at dinner with a really big deal investment guy. It was not Warren Buffett, but kind of almost that league. In the middle of dinner, he turned to me. It was a private dinner, so I will not mention names. He turned to me and he said, Tom, do you know what the biggest failing of CEOs is? And I was born a smart ass. And I said, no, I don't. I can think of 50, but I can't narrow it down to one. And he he didn't crack a smile. He, He does smile a lot. It's not that kind of thing. But he said, they don't read enough. They don't read enough. And that's mainly my answer to you. Regardless of your age, regardless of your position, because of this change, You have got to become an intense student in a way that makes your, if you have one, PhD studies look like small change. Uh, And the reason I veered to that is I was about to kind of try to answer your question, and I was going to kind of refer to some of these things that say that the kids, there's a new generation unnamed, the people who were born on the day that the iPhone was released or later. And you've seen it, and I've seen it, and you see a couple or four people sitting down at a dinner in a restaurant back when we used to do those things, and all four of them are looking at their iPhones. And they message each other. Now, because of my age or your age, that's pretty damn antisocial, but that's not the point. The point is, back to my neurobiological illusion, uh, you know, a couple minutes ago, it's screwing with our brains. And you kind of referred to, I don't remember what the, what the comments you were, and I don't know if it was Mr. Morris or whatever it was, but, you know, you, you, you re, it is the pickle barrel. It's, uh, and, you know, we've learned to do Zoom better etc. But there's some big stuff going down with this technology. Shirley Turkle, is that her name, has been writing about this. I think she's from UC Berkeley maybe for years and years and years. Uh, But the enormity of it is more significant than the jobs that AI might or might not cost. And I think I can't understand the language and people who are a third my age probably can't mostly either without the training, but you really, you gotta be a student. You've got to smell it and think about it and talk about it and talk with your friends about it and talk with your colleagues about it. And, and really, you know, really pay attention. I think studenthood has always been important. I said, again, other than the good manners, the other thing that my mother did was, She turned me into an intense reader by probably the age of six. I was a little precocious on that dimension, but it doesn't matter what the starting point was. But, you know, books after books after books were shoved into my hands and then my hands were tied. Uh, But, uh, so you you won't be able to keep up, but, you know, you should, for example, as we happen to be having this conversation – we had the big hack of the giant pipeline and people in the South back to the olden days in long lines to get gas. Well, you know, the the, 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 the release of cyber weapons over the next 10 or 20 years, God knows what it's going to do to us. Now, you probably can't understand it unless your training is in that area. God alone knows I can't understand it, but I can be a lot more aware and a lot more thoughtful And, you know, just I won't refuse to use the word keep up because that's not the point. Just aware, thoughtful, engaged on this stuff. And if you do it enough, you know, you'll you'll get there. And, and, you know, if you're running a company of, let's say, more than 25 people, there definitely ought to be a book club.
0: That's a that's a great point. And, and to me, you know, I was a classics major as an undergraduate and I didn't fully realize the value of the classics until later in my career. Yeah. Where I go, Oh, we're talking about human nature. We're talking about things that have been the same for 5,000 years. And look, if I can understand the patterns, then it doesn't matter what AI or technology comes next. I'll yep. be able to predict how humans are likely to react. And uh, even Mark Cuban. You know, as, as technologically advanced an investor as he is, he has said on the record many times that, um, a philosophy degree will be worth more in 10 years than an engineering degree because we need the, the basics of ethics and collaboration and communication skills and things that AI and, and, and machines aren't going to be able to bring to us. So
1: I read that he was even stronger than that, that he said he won't give won't give good punks of seed money to any place that doesn't have a philosophy major is, well, I, I if you, I'm not trying to pedal pedal books. And so it's very easy to find it without buying the book uh, somewhere in the book where I think maybe I talk about the read thing is a book reading list of about six books, all of which are why the liberal arts will dominate in the digital age. And, you know, I buy that in every, every sense of the word. It, it makes perfect sense to me. Uh, and I am jealous of your, one, Now you it don't, you don't want to hear my bitch session. My bitch session is why I went to two of the greatest universities in the world, Cornell and Stanford, and each of them had a business school quad and an engineering quad. And then they had the real quad with liberal arts. And I'm not sure, despite five years at Cornell and five years at Stanford, that I could even find the liberal arts squad. (laughs) We were isolated. We were, you know, we were in a prison cell of our of our own making. It's criminal. And there I was, hundred yards from some of the greatest people and brains in the world, and I said, "I don't waste a goddamn dime on another accounting course. Go over there." and. Take a literature course? What the hell do you... Oh, other way, here's the final point. Uh, I am in an old man's walking group, and we walk for a couple of hours every Sunday. Uh, one of my closest friends uh, worked for many years for the CIA, and he's a, he's a physicist, and he was involved in taking the crappy film that came out of the belly of a U-2 spy plane and cleaning it up and enhancing it with software so that you could see if the bad guys had missiles parked here or there. But we got to talking about it, and it wasn't the conversation you and I are having. It came out of nowhere in a way. And he said, you know, the funny damn thing when I was in in the CIA is he said there was a guy who kind of did what I did, and he did it better a lot. And I took him out for a drink one day, and I said, you know, I said, what's your secret? And he said, guess what? I actually have a secret. He said, I never have a team that doesn't have at least one musician on it. And he said, that person just, he said, I don't know what they do, and I don't know how they do it, and it doesn't matter. They just look at the world in a different way, and they ask questions that an MIT trained physicist or whatever would never ask. And he said, he said, I don't understand, but it really works. And I was just writing something. And I said, if you've got, well, yeah, there were a million things we could say. There's a, there's a a write up on how Google found that STEM was the least important thing in the world and human virtues were the most important, but that's for another day and another conversation. But I just love the no, no, no high tech spy teams without a musician. That's amazing.
0: And and music. Well, there's
1: a woman, there's a woman, Emily Chang, I believe, who wrote a book. I lived in Silicon Valley for 30 years and almost made me throw up. It was called Brotopia Colon, something like breaking the boys' club mentality of Silicon Valley. And it was loaded with awful stories. But but the one thing I remember, and this goes back to our women's discussion too, is she said if 30 or 40% of the people writing code for Facebook had been women. And there's really an important word here. She said the code would have had a different sensibility. And I love that word. And you're the philosopher, but sensibility is a high powered word. Yes. It would just, something would probably have, Felt different, smelled different, tasted different, uh, and I'm not a Facebook or Zuckerberg fan, and that's a gross understatement. Uh, but uh, but I thought it was really an, an incredible line. The book was awful. Uh, one of the joys of Twitter is being able to talk with people like that. Yeah, that, I mean I I'm a Twitter user, and I, and that's what I get off on. There was uh, many of the people who are listening to us who are probably over the age of 40 may remember the Enron scandal. And the woman who blew the cover off it was a woman by the name of Sharon Watkins. And thanks to Twitter, Sharon and I have a great conversation going on. It's so cool to talk to somebody like that. It's, you know, That's but at amazing. any rate,
0: thank you so much for your, your time, Tom Peters. Um, the book is, uh, excellence now, uh, extreme humanism get it wherever fine books are sold and continue in the pursuit of excellence thanks Tom well it
1: was a great pleasure on as many dimensions as I can name it was a wonder, wonderful experience so thank
0: you each of us has the power of extreme humanism within us more than any process or technology driven improvement the way we show up and treat each other is what will define our excellence. Thank you for joining us and for being an advocate for timeless and principled leadership, whenever and wherever you find it. I'm Scott Monty. Until next time, may you dream more, learn more, do more, and become more for you are a leader.